Welcome to the Shields Outdoors podcast, your source for information on hunting, fishing, and all of your outdoor passions. Welcome, everybody. My name is Ben Fleischak with Shields. I'll be your host for this evening. This is our first ever virtual hunt fest. We're very excited for it. Uh, currently right now with Shields, I do a lot of the product work for uh, product development. So Shields or Shields Outfitter products. I'm very excited to be here. And uh, tonight we're actually talking Western big game hunting with Randy Newberg, which is very, very exciting because he's very authentic and he's actually on a hunt tonight or today, I should say, not tonight. Sorry, Randy. Uh, but uh, he is actually on location, which is very exciting. Uh, over here to my left, I've got some great prize packages. We're very excited to be partnered with Sitka and Leupold on this. And I will be giving away about $3,500 worth of gear at, tonight, at the end of tonight's episode. So to kick this off, I'm going to go ahead and introduce Randy. Uh, he's been around the industry for a long time. He's a hunter. Uh, one thing I really appreciate about Randy is the fact that he's very authentic. And I've already said that. He's a normal guy. You can have a conversation with him, ask any questions. Obviously, he's not going to give you exact locations or waypoints. However, he is a big, big help for the industry. We're very, very proud to be partnered with him. So, Mr. Randy Newberg, introduce yourself real quick. Well, thank you, Ben. I really appreciate it. Happy to be here. I'm here. I, I hijacked some Wi-Fi from a, a Holiday Inn Express in Elko, Nevada for this event. So I apologize if it's not quite my normal studio setting. Uh, but I, I appreciate the accolades and the kind words. Uh, I was lucky. I grew up in northern Minnesota in a little wide spot in the road between Bemidji and International Falls, a little town called Big Falls, where everybody hunted. It's what you did. You hunted. It wasn't, am I going to hunting? It's where are you going hunting and Door when school. you going. Yeah. So, and then I lived in Montana the last 30 years. So uh, I always say, what a country. Yeah. And I can't believe, I can't believe I live in this country and have the job that I have. If you want to call it a job. Yeah. Your so. smiles lies. <laughs> Look at that smile. Very good. So in Arizona right now, chasing muleys, um, Nevada, stick in, Nevada, sorry, Nevada yeah. stick and string. Correct. Yep. Stick and string. Full velvet. Spot. Yeah. Spot and spook as we call <laughs> spot it. Spot and spook. <laughs> Blame it on the cameraman. I always blame the camera guy. I brought, brought two camera guys. That way I can blame either of them. That's good. That's very smart. Well, good. Well, uh, at the end of this, we're going to talk about 40 minutes or so. You and I just kind of go down some wormholes here, and then we're going to bring up some audience questions. And uh, we've already got a handful of those rolling through. Uh, some of them we may actually already talk about through this. And at the end, there is going to be some targeted ones, I'm sure, uh, on cool. very specific. And so I guess what got you into the industry outside your family? I mean, what what made you take that leap to – to start hunting professionally? Uh, well, um, <laughs> we don't have enough time to talk about it, but I'm going to blame it on my son, Matthew. Uh, I have this weird liver condition and I come home from the Mayo Clinic one summer and they said, you got to just rest for three months. And I watched too much outdoor TV, which is not medicinal at all. <laughs> and he said, dad, we could do better than them. I said, well, yeah, that's why I'm on the couch and they're on TV. Mm -hmm. So a few days later, he talked my wife into ordering every type of TV production gear you could think of. And I came downstairs. I said, what's all this? My wife says, well, Matthew says you guys are going to start producing videos. I said, well, I guess I'm in the video business now. And that's really how it started. Okay. Him and I and friends filming each other. And then we ended up on TV uh, in 2009 and did that for eight years uh, nine years. And now we're strictly YouTube, Amazon prime, couple podcasts, all that stuff. So yeah, your podcast I, following is pretty big. Yeah. I, I wish I could tell you that it was all by design, but like a lot of things in life, it's more of an accident than it is on purpose. Yep. 
run with it. Yep. Very so, good. So as, as long as my as long as my wife keeps letting me do it, I'm I'm here. Yeah. <laughs> happy wife, happy life. Yeah. All right. Um, so when you're when you plan this trip, I mean obviously this isn't anything new to you in the area, but what are some of the gear that you always make sure is either brand new or up to good condition outside your bow, outside your optics? Uh, what are some yep. of those not secret things, but tricks of the trade that you've learned over the years of traveling? Yeah. For me, every trip that we go on and we spend about a hundred days a year in the field doing this stuff. So you kind of get things refined and dialed in of what works for you. Mm -hmm. And everybody has a different hunting style. Like, People think, oh, Nevada, August, I'm going to hunt water. I need a blind. I need whatever. I don't have the mental fortitude to hunt in a blind. So I'm all right. I'm going to be doing spot and stock. Yep. Okay. If I'm doing spot and stock, what are the things that are going to be different? I'm going to use a different pack than I normally do. I want something quieter. I'm going to bring a butt pad, like a cushion for my butt, because sometimes you get within that 40 yards and the deer is still bedded in the sagebrush and you just have to sit and wait them out. Mm -hmm. So that my sick of gear, like right now I've brought with my ascent and my apex system. Whereas later in the season, I'm going to be hunting with my timberline, my jet stream, all yep. that stuff. So I would say probably my, uh, my clothing and then the things that make it really comfortable when you're out there in the sun, spotting, stocking, and waiting out these deer sometime for two to three hours at a session. Mm -hmm. How much water are you guys bringing in? Uh, right now we have, uh, 20 gallons in the truck for three of us. And then we also have our water filters with us. We know there's a spring out there. Okay. So yeah, it, when I leave the truck in the morning, I have my three liter bladder plum full. Yep. And a lot of times I'll go through that and I'll walk back to the truck and I'll rewater. Oh, it's, wow. Yeah. Dehydration is, it's so brutal out here. One, you have the low humidity, the high temperatures, but then also we're hunting at eight to 9,000 feet of elevation. Mm -hmm. So you add all that and dehydration, it, it creeps in so slowly, just so incrementally that some, day, some days you don't even realize it. And then you get back to camp at night and you're just wiped out because yep. you let yourself get dehydrated. So. Yeah, I could definitely see that coming from a lot of the flatlanders. I mean, we're up in North Dakota, you know, and I think the elevation is five feet. Uh, <laughs> it's one of those things that, I mean, what do you do to prepare yourself? I mean, I obviously you live in Minnesota or sorry, not Minnesota, Montana, but is there like a workout regime you've got? I mean, is it nutrition? Cause I see there's a yeah, lot of guys that ask, you know, aspire to do these types of hunts, but the physical conditioning right. may not necessarily be there. Yeah. For me, uh, I'm not a gym rat. I, I'm in my other life. I'm an accountant. I drive a desk for a living. So <laughs> I have to figure out what works for me. And what works for me is hiking. I, I wish I had the, the mental composition to be able to go to a gym and get on the Stairmaster for two hours. Mm -hmm. I can't, I, I get bored. So I'm lucky where I live in Montana. I have a lot of mountains nearby. Mm -hmm. And so I do a lot of uh, hiking and the purpose of it is to toughen up my feet, my ankles, my knees, all of that, and my core and try to replicate what it is when I'm trying to do a stock on a mule deer or when I'm trying to just cover a lot of terrain when I'm elk hunting and just walking on flat compact surfaces doesn't do that. So yeah. I'm looking for places where I can step over logs, dip under a blow down side hill for a few hundred yards, downhill, uphill. And that type of stuff for me is way better than going to the gym. Yeah. So it, I know that doesn't sound very scientific, but, no. uh, 
it works for me. Yeah. Similar to run bird dogs. You put them in the situation, right? Yeah. All right. So with the, um, with your shooting, I mean, with the archery, considering the spot and stock and everything that goes into it, I mean, it's not a tree stand. It's not sitting in a ground blind situation. I mean, you have to watch yourself, uh, especially your height. I think that's one thing that most people kind of forget about is how high you're actually sticking up when you're spot stocking. Yep. Uh, but yep. do you practice in shooting in different positions? I mean, from your knee, from oh. your butt, from yep. all the above? I, I do. I, and because of the terrain being so varied here, like you were saying, in a tree stand, you kind of know where your shooting angles are. Mm -hmm. All right. This angle here, I've cleared that. I've cleared this. And if they come underneath, okay, I'm going to have that. Well, here, you don't know. You have to be really adaptable. So sometimes you're sitting on your butt. Sometimes you're on your knee. Sometimes you get up on one knee. Sometimes it's a steep downhill angle. Sometimes it's just straight across the hill. It's... uh it's a little bit of everything. And I, I'm not one of those people who like long shots. I only have a 40 yard pin on my bow. I archery hunt to get close. That's the pleasure of, of archery hunting and seeing how close I can get. Mm -hmm. So I just, you know, I might try 42, 43 yards just cause I know. And, and out at my range at my house, I've got out to 70 yards, but I don't yep. even, I don't even put that pin when I'm out hunting. And so many things can there's so many variables you can't control whether it's wind whether it's the body position and just the the readiness or alertness of the deer there's there's so many factors that for me i know every five yards every yard i get closer and closer the likelihood of something going bad gets less and the likelihood of a good outcome gets greater so uh yep. for me i shoot it i shoot a heavy setup people look at it and they're like wow you shoot 125 grain fixed blade broad two blade broadhead total arrow weight of about probably 500 total grains mm -hmm. uh and i have shoulder problems so i only draw 62 pounds and uh it my equipment's way more capable than i am let's put it that way yeah well it's better to be that way right you, can, you can't blame your equipment at that point just yeah. the cameraman good uh, all right so uh, what other states are you going to this year? Uh, this year I've, I've got Nevada and then I have my next hunts will be in Wyoming. And then I've got Colorado, Montana, uh, Arizona. I'm taking a guest hunter to New Mexico. Uh, next spring, uh, I might go with my camera crew on their Alaska black bear hunt. Uh, my son and I have Oregon elk tags this year. Oh, wow. So yeah, I think that covers it. <laughs> It's going to be busy a few months. <laughs> How yeah, many of those are? The, I'm sorry, go ahead. What's the, I, I look at the calendar and I think to myself, really? I, I'm going to be gone <laughs> that much? I hope my wife doesn't look at this. <laughs> Does she come along at all? Uh, what's that? Does she come along at all? Uh, she she used to hunt a lot and she loves to walleye fish. That's her gig. But anymore, she's just like, you know what? I don't want to be on camera. I don't want to be in the way of you guys. Just go do it yeah so that's cool but, so how yeah. many of those hunts are elk versus deer you know that's uh <laughs> i have five elk tags this year myself all right yeah and uh it helps living in montana because they get an over-the-counter tag yep i drew just a general tag in wyoming so that wasn't that hard to draw uh i bought an over-the-counter tag in idaho I drew a Colorado elk tag that only took three points, so I can draw it every two or three years. And then in Oregon, I drew a tag that has leftover tags. Oh, so wow. None, okay. of, none of the none of my hunts, I mean, occasionally I do the apply for the real hard-to-draw tag. 
but not for the most part. I just want to go. Just so, haunt. Fill the freezer. Yeah. Yep. So and my can- freezer, I like I told you before <laughs> we got on air, Ben, my freezer is empty and yeah. it's not a good day to be any antlered buck here in Nevada. <laughs> if it's a legal buck, it's, yeah. <laughs> it, it could be in danger. Yep. So kind of in the same lines of the hunting, I mean, what's your, I, I think we even know kind of where this is going to go, but what are your two top hunting memories you've got? Not necessarily size, not necessarily anything specific, but what sticks out, what resonates the most? You know, before my son was born and he and I spent so much hunting, it probably would have been some hunts with my dad or my grandfather or my uncles or something. But there's there's no doubt it's at this point, even as blessed as I've been to hunt so many places and do so many cool things. It's definitely the hunts when my son shot his first deer and when he shot his first elk. Mm-hmm. It's I, I still remember he shot this white tail though. And I was doing backflips and jumping up and down. And then later that day, he shot a really big meal deer. And then I was really excited. And both times he just looked at me, dad, it's just a deer. I'm like, no, son, you don't get it. So I, I, I can recall everything about those days, the weather, what time we got up, Mm -hmm. uh, I could recreate that stock a hundred times. I just, it's that vivid to me. And, and I think any of us who hunt, the the memories that we form with those who we love who are close to us whether it's family friends some mm-hmm. mentor we had a school teacher a hunter ed instructor whoever it is we all have those special memories and hunting for me anyhow in my family has tightened the bonds so in a way that no other activity strengthens those relationships yep and that's one thing that you know here just as a company at shields and i think a lot of other retailers we're kind of looking to see what the fall is going to bring. Cause with the spring and summer, I mean, we saw so many activities with fishing. I mean, fishing license permits were up turkey hunting. I've never seen so many people out in my life chasing turkeys. And so, I mean, this fall we're all, there's only so many tags that are given. However, there's still a lot of over the counter tags and there's still a lot of hunting license for small game. And so, I mean, we're, we're very optimistic about there's going to be a lot of recruitment going on. A lot of people that haven't been a part of the hunting world in quite a few years, yeah. you know, that grew up hunting and then kind of life took them a different direction. And now, they're going to get back into it. So we're, we're very interested yeah. to see what's going on. I, I'm excited to see what's going on. I know some people will say, oh, it's going to be crowded. Well, you know what? It, it might be, but yep. we'll figure it out. And I would rather have more hunters there when we need them for the advocacy and for all the, the other things, the volunteerism, their time, their Absolutely. talent, their, their, their donations. And more is better. Let's yep. just put it that way. Yeah. Yeah. I think we're, we all live in that same place of, I don't want more people out there. I don't want more pressure, but I mean, the recruitment is just so vital for the sport and just, you know, what it's going to look like in the next 15, 20 years from now. Yeah. I mean, I I think about how the generation before me went out of their way to make sure I would have a chance that I'd have land, land to hunt. I'd have opportunities. And I feel that it's that generational thing and I want to do my part. Yeah, I agree. 100%. hundred um, percent. Well, actually, let's bring a question from the, the audience. It looks like we got quite a few rolling in. So we got Luke, uh, Luke Teagles. I apologize if I mispronounce your last name. At least it's not saying Flyshacker. But <laughs> what dates would you target for Arizona OTC, Archer Mule Deer, and Coos? Uh, or cows, whoever pronounces it the right way. Yeah. Um, if, if I was going after Mule Deer, I would target about December 5th or 5th to 10th. 
if I was going for coos deer, I would target probably January 5th through the 10th or 12th. Okay. Is that during the rut? Yeah. I want to make that peak rut. Uh, When I'm archery hunting, I need all the help I can get. So (laughs) if their guard guard is down a little bit, that's when I want to be there. Yep. Now is everything you do rifle in archery? Uh, Do you do crossbow at all or longbow or? No, I, I always say when I grow up, I'll shoot traditional archery, but uh-huh. I've never grown up yet. So <laughs> it's all for me is all rifle or, uh, just compound. compound. Bow. I don't, I don't have a muzzle loader. I don't have a, a crossbow. So that's kind of where you see us. Mm-hmm. All right. We got another one. Jeez, they're rolling in. We got Logan Haberst- Haberstro. <laughs> this might be the highlights of the reels. It's trying to pronounce last names, but <laughs> If you had to give advice for a first-time elk hunter, what would be the main three, four things you would tell them? And then why? First thing, yeah, first thing I'd tell you is don't give up. Yep. Do not give up. I I spent my first six years of elk hunting without filling a tag. And wow. th- those six years were the best foundation of education I could have asked for, for my, my future as a passionate elk hunter. Mm-hmm. Every day... I got frustrated because it didn't work out the way I wanted. But now that I look back on it, those were all lessons. There are no failures in elk hunting unless you quit and just Mm -hmm. hang it up. Every day is a learning experience. Uh, If I was to say there's one overlooked aspect of elk hunting that I think whitetail hunters excel at, it's managing wind. Whitetail hunters, as we know, they, you know, where they set up their stands, they've got multiple Mm -hmm. stands. They look at, okay, I can hunt this one on a southwest wind. All right, a north wind, I hunt this stand. They are really dialed in to wind and scent. Elk hunters, as a a general rule, aren't quite as worked up about that. And I know I wasn't. I thought, well, here's this big clumsy animal making all this noise in the woods. Uh, I'll just get closer. Mm -hmm. No, that... Elk are right up there with the KGO whitetail buck when it comes to how much they rely on their nose. Um, so those are probably two points. One uh, other point I would say, and this was for me, is invest in your own mind. It, learn as much about elk as you possibly can. And the number one reason I find that either myself, if I struggled to fill a tag or people who ask me questions is, we, ha- we haven't done the research and homework necessary to consistently find the elk at the time of year we have our tag. Because elk move across the landscape mm-hmm. to take advantage of what the landscape offers. And they do that. And they're in very different areas in early September when archery season open compared to where they are in late October or November or December. So they are in the places on that landscape based on what they need at that time of year. Mm-hmm. Well, as those needs change throughout the year, so does their location. So and as you can read and research and understand as much about elk as you possibly could. That's that that was a process that got me over that that six year drought. And mm-hmm. opening morning in the seventh year, I I put this whole plan together. All right, this is a post rut hunt. I know they're looking for sanctuary. Sanctuary needs to have food, water, and cover at some place and distance from a road or trail. I went out there, boom. Opening morning, shot my first elk. And every year after that it was like boom, boom, 
why, why did I make this so hard? Yep. Well, the reason I made it so hard is I was not investing in my own knowledge. Mm-hmm. And I, <clears throat> I was always thinking there was a shortcut and there is no shortcut to knowledge. Yep. So what do you, um, this is kind of a tricky question, double-edged sword. Uh-oh. Just because hunting is, I mean, there's so many factors that go into it. I mean, it could be pressure. It could be weather patterns. It could be drought. It could be overwatered, you know, whatever it might be. Um, do you see that, you know, your the elk you hunt in Oregon versus the elk you hunt in Montana versus the elk you hunt in Colorado, do they all act different at different times of the year? Not just because of the weather patterns, but if it's post-rut, does it matter if it's post-rut in Oregon or if it's post-rut in Colorado? Does that make a difference? Or is it that the it, recipe the same? I, I'm going to stick strictly to Rocky Mountain elk because this will be my first year of hunting Roosevelt elk. So this yeah. is the disclaimer that <laughs> all right, doesn't apply to Roosevelt. Maybe it does, but I can't say that for sure. But I break it into five calendar periods. There's early season, there's pre-rut, peak rut, post-rut, and late season. And in any range that the elk, the Rocky Mountain elk occupy, their behaviors and their needs are the same in Montana as they are in New Mexico, as they are in Wyoming versus Arizona for the post rut, Mm -hmm. for the pre rut, for the peak rut. So you can use those same five calendar periods. They might change a day or two as to when you go from one period to the other, you know, based on your latitude. But as a general rule, the needs, elk have four basic needs. Three are permanent and one is temporary. That's food, water, sanctuary, and then the seasonal need of breeding. You, the, those needs determine where they're going to go on the landscape. So in September 20th, we know what that primary need is. It's breeding, breeding, cows, mm-hmm. cows, cows. Well, two months later, November 20th, it's sanctuary, sanctuary, sanctuary. So uh, where you're going to find them when they're trying to find a sanctuary to survive hunting season is way different than where you're going to find them when they're trying to find cows on September 20th. So think of those five calendar periods. Think what the need is, the primary need in that that calendar period that you're hunting, and that is where you're going to consistently find the elk in that unit. That's great advice. Thank you for sharing some secrets here. That's that's a lot of years of experience divulged right there. Of, Hopefully people were paying lot, attention on that one. A lot of failure in coming up with that basic. But I, I, I tell people, I am so below average, I got to make it basic. I, <laughs> I got to have these basic ideas of how I approach it. Yep. And when I go out in the field, I have what I call an e-scouting plan, electronic e-scouting. And I follow that religiously. I, I do so much time at my desk. And when I get there, most often it's a unit I've never hunted. So mm-hmm. I'm scouting on, on my computer and I have first morning spot, first afternoon spot, second morning spot, second afternoon. And a whole lot of scouting, just like the days you're in the field, is eliminating where the elk aren't. Yep. Because as you eliminate more and more of your scouting, and then when you get there and you find this spot didn't work, that spot didn't work, you're just getting that much closer to success because you're eliminating the places the elk aren't. So about what day of the hunt is that usually for you? Like day three, do you feel you got that confidence that, you know what, this is going to happen? Or is it usually day four? About, yeah. Yeah. Usually about day three, it's like, all right, there's only a few places left. And yep. And if I can get a day of scouting in advance, I I will give up a day of scouting for a day of hunting. 
And a lot of people probably think, well, that's crazy. But with elk, I have my opening day plan. If I'm there, the day season opens, I have my opening day plan. And then I have my after opening day plan. Because once the shooting starts, it's like you took the the jigsaw puzzle and you just scrambled it all up again. Yeah. And they go into a different behavior after that. So if I can get their opening day, and or before opening day and scout and i find a bull the night before season before the shooting has started i am in there well before sunup the next morning set up on that bull and the odds are he's gonna be there and hopefully it works out but if not then i gotta have this other plan based on these five periods and these four basic needs Mm -hmm. and that's where the rest of the plan comes into play again good information thank you all right. So one of the questions from our YouTube chat window is what is your, what is a bucket list hunt for you? Uh, I took care of my bucket list hunt last year. I went to British Columbia and did mountain caribou. It's something that has been on my list since I was 13, 14 years oh, old, wow. something like that. Yeah. And I've been saving money, kind of not uh, trying to figure out how do I not feel guilty taking this time away from my family and out of the household budget and so uh that was my bucket list hunt and and i did it last year uh my next bucket list hunt and some people are probably going to think this is crazy but we canceled it this year because of covid and a whole bunch of other things is ptarmigan mm. <laughs> i sign me i'm up. a I, i'm a crazy grouse hunting fanatic having grown up in Northern Minnesota where they call them partridge. Uh, Yeah. It just, it was so much fun. And so now even out here in the West, I'm hunting rough grouse, blue grouse, anything, but I really want to go ptarmigan hunting. So I I'm hoping next August, we're going to be able to fly into the Brooks range, use our rafts and float out and hunt ptarmigan and possibly caribou in the same hunt. That'd be really cool. Yeah. That's awesome. All right. We have Jordan K who brings up, and this would be, you're going to have to think back a little bit, but he's got a kid being born in a month. What's the best way to manage hunting and family time? Oh, that's, that's always difficult because you have this desire to go out and hunt whenever you can. But I would say that be, be thoughtful in that. Don't be selfish in that. For me, I was lucky. My my wife liked being outdoors. So me and my wife and my son, we were walleye fishing or we were bird hunting or we were whatever. And yeah, there was always the temptation of, okay, my buddies called and said, hey, let's, let's go on this trip. Mm-hmm. And I declined all those. And I know every situation is different, but I just felt that I needed to, I needed that balance. Uh, I, I needed to not be selfish about it. And so there were times I probably said, oh, darn, I wish I would have went on that pheasant trip back to South Dakota or whatever. Uh, And as my son grew older and older and he could do more and more, it was easier to find those adventures that Mm -hmm. he could be a part of. And if he could be a part of it, my wife could. And so uh, it just, (laughs) congratulations, first of all. And it's going to be whatever effort you put into raising a kid, it's the most rewarding, greatest return of your time, of anything you'll do in your life. Uh, but just just be balanced about it. Yeah. That's probably my, my best advice. Yep. Appreciate it. All right. What's the number one suggestion for a first-time over-the-counter elk hunters on BLM land in Colorado? It's getting very targeted in, uh, now. Okay. 
In Colorado. All right. So BLM land is usually a little lower than Forest Service. So if if he says BLM land, Bureau of Land Management, that's lower country. So go yep. in the third rifle over the counter season. Don't go in the second. And then in the third rifle, that's always the first part of November. A lot of you Midwestern folks, the deer season opens like in Minnesota, it opens the first Saturday and yep. in uh, November. So those folks all go in the second season. So the woods are way filled with people more so in the second season than in the third season. So go the third season and then go and find the places that you, if you shot an elk, you really would regret having shot one there. Those are sanctuaries. Those are the places that most <laughs> hunters don't want to go. Yep. Now, there's some other areas that create sanctuaries. Boundaries create sanctuaries. So if you're hunting in Colorado and you're on the Colorado-Wyoming border, the Colorado-Utah border, well, people don't hunt near borders because it's like, well, if one runs over there, I got a problem. Mm -hmm. Well, public-private creates borders. A unit that's a limited entry unit and an over-the-counter unit creates a boundary. That, that Anywhere there's a boundary, there's some sanctuary because mm -hmm. most hunters stay away from boundaries. They say, I'm going to go right in this great big chunk of land. Yep. Well, not, not me. You're going to find me over kind of skirting along the edges there. And uh, so... If, if I was that person, I, I would also pay attention to the transition ranges. So the transition range is between summer ranges up high, winter ranges down low, and the Colorado Parks and Wildlife website has all this information. So whatever unit you pick, look to see where the winter and summer range is. And you know that the transition range is where you're going to find elk in hunting season. If it's been a warm year, they're going to be at the upper end of that transition. If it's been early snow and cold, they're going to be in the lower end of that transition range. Mm -hmm. So use those basic things to help you eliminate the places where they're not. And you'll, you'll find them. Colorado's got a lot of elk. Yeah, they do. All right. So one of the questions is kind of sticking on the, uh, the elk theme, which is all questions so far. <laughs> um, <laughs> a couple of them is for if you could pick any unit in any state, to shoot the biggest trophy elk that you know of or have ever seen or seen a picture of, what would you, where would you go and what unit? Oh, wow. This is a dream hunt. Dream hunt. Uh, I've had some of these dream tags uh, and I've seen some really big elk. Boy, that, that would be a toss up. I, it depends on the moisture year. If it was a really good moisture year, I'd pick Nevada or Arizona. Uh, and it would be any of the real popular units in Arizona. It's it, There's no secret to no secret, what the yeah. popular units are. Some of them have early rifle seasons where you get to hunt them with a rifle in September during the rut. Sign me up for that. <laughs> I got to do it one time in 2005. Uh, or uh, I just, as people can probably tell, the fact that I'm here in Nevada in August, Nevada has some unbelievable elk hunting. Yeah. And there, there are not any units in Nevada that I think are bad. And there are a couple that are just knock your socks off. So, uh, or if you like to hunt late season elk, it'd probably be one of the late season migration hunts in uh, Wyoming. Yep. So, a lot of options to look at there. What calibers do you like the most for elk? Um, everybody knows I'm really fond of my 308. 
and people are like, well, 308 for elk. And they, they kind of chuckle at me that I shoot, you know, nozzler partition, 165 grain. It, it it's killed some, if you had uh, a dollar for every elk that's been killed by a 308 or a nozzler partition bullet, you'd, you could retire at a very young age. Mm -hmm. And so that's what I use because I like something a little more compact. I'm, I'm backpack hunting. So I usually want a lighter, lighter rifle setup. So I end up with, uh, a 308 that's a short action cartridge. Yep. And I, and the distances I shoot, I always, I, I don't shoot over 400 yards and usually my elk shots are 150 to 250 yards. If you hit an elk with a 308 in a good spot at, at those distances, the game's up. Yep. So I, but you know, there's some years that last year uh, I'd loaned one of my 308s to a friend. So everyone is asking, Oh, everything you shot last year is with your 300 win mag. What's up with that? Uh, well, that's what I had available and that works really good too. And then some years that like this year, I'm doing what's called one year, one cartridge. And this year, I'm going to probably hunt everything with a 7mm08. And mm. again, another short action cartridge that allows me to go on a, a shorter action uh, rifle and save a little bit of weight. Pretty smart. Yeah. All right. Uh, we've got a couple questions, too. One of them is elk education. What sources do you use? And then what do you look at for your virtual scouting process? Oh boy, those those could take a long time to answer. But uh, the education minutes. sources that that I use, yeah, if I was going to go one place, uh, and unfortunately this book is out of print, so uh, the Wildlife Management Institute doesn't print it anymore. I've sent so many people to buy it. They finally emailed me and said, "Randy, quit telling people that you can buy the book here." But it's Elk and Elk Ecology by Jack Ward Thomas. Uh, WMI said they might be making that in a digital format. That'd be good. Uh, so, yeah, that'd, that'd be so good because it is the encyclopedia of, of everything, the studies. Uh, I spend a ton of time reading publications by the Wildlife Society, which is the association of all our fish and game biologists. Uh, the Starkey Experimental Forest has the U.S. Forest Service, Oregon State University, and the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation have done all of this amazing elk research on the Starkey National Forest or Experimental Forest. Those are absolute gems and nuggets when you go and Google those reports and you got to read them. It, it's some heavy, heavy reading. Uh, we put a lot of uh, elk hunting information out on our YouTube channel. Mm -hmm. If you wanted to say, all right, what's one place I can go and subscribe and I could make uh, a five hour investment and really get a lot out of it. A uh, good friend of mine, Corey Jacobson has an online course called the university of elk hunting. Yep. It's, it's super helpful. Uh, and I think if you use promo code Randy, he'll give you a discount. Uh, don't tell him I said that. But, uh. <laughs> Too late. <laughs> <laughs> so that's another really good place to get it. I think he's got elk101.com is where that's at. Yeah. Uh, and then that's, th those are the places where I, I really go to. Uh, I do a podcast with Corey and it's specifically, it's everything elk. It's only elk. That's all we talk about is elk hunting, tag applications. Like today, the podcast we did on the way down here was all about exact setup, both strategy and tactic for early season archery elk. I mean, that's how precise we get in some of this stuff. So if you're into, into podcasts, we do the elk talk podcast that people might get some value out of. Absolutely. Um, 
think we got time for a couple more questions. They say yes. All right. Okay. No, um, just my qual my qualifier. A couple of my high school buddies said they were going to log in tonight and ask some embarrassing questions. So if you get any questions from Charlie or Joel, I'm not taking them. Deal. We haven't seen those come through yet, <laughs> but they probably they are listening. They're gonna they're gonna start punching them in there. Maybe we get some good dirt on you yeah. about that one time in college. All right. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, this question uh, comes from Grant. Um, I think we already know the answer. Part of it is because of the conservation of what your preference point purchases do. But what is the view of the future for Western states with preference points? And is it still a good idea for new hunters to be applying? Yeah, this is a really complicated salute or problem that I struggle to find solutions because once you start these point schemes, whether it's a preference point system, a bonus point system, now you have taken money from people from applicants with the expectation that they're going to get something for it. Yep. So uh, I call them complicated uh, schemes because I, I spend my entire winter months doing whatever I can to maybe give me a two or 3% better draw odd based on how these programs work. Um, because I don't see them going away. I think if you are serious about wanting to hunt the West, you look at what your financial budget is and you start out in certain states like Wyoming, you should be buying points in Wyoming. Mm -hmm. If, if you look at the states where you should, where you have to buy an upfront license, but you can get the most value out of it, it's Arizona. Uh, so it, those are investments that, mm -hmm. that you're making. And I, I wish it wasn't as expensive. I wish it wasn't that complicated, but that's the reality. The part I tell people is make sure your expectations are reasonable. Don't apply here where I'm at in Nevada. The odds of drawing a tag here in Nevada as a non-resident, even with 15 points, is really slim. So don't jump into the game thinking, oh, in three years, I'm going to draw a Nevada elk tag. And like I, I told you that my Colorado elk tag this year took three points. Mm -hmm. Well, once I burned a big pile of points a few years back, now every two or three years, I'm burning my points in, in Colorado because you can still have a quality hunt. Yep. And for me, I would rather that people go hunting rather than sit around and wait for the glory tag, wait and wait and get frustrated. You know what? Just go. Mm -hmm. And I also tell people have a short-term, medium-term, and long-term plan. There's some states, if your budget can afford it, is going to be a long-term plan, Nevada and Utah for elk. There's going to be some short-term plans, Idaho and Colorado. You can get it over the counter if you're if you're on top of it. And then there's some medium-term plans. Those, were, in my mind, are normally going to be Wyoming and Montana, New Mexico. Uh, New Mexico doesn't have a point system, nor does Idaho. So I tell people, if you can afford the upfront license cost, throw your name in the hat on those two, because I've been applying there for 20 some years and the first year applicant has the same odds as I do next year. Yep. So there there's places out there to still go. Absolutely. All right. So what would be, we're going to segment this, what would be the top three products that products, items, whatever it might be that you bring with you to a whitetail hunt. To a whitetail hunt. And tree stand or you, ground blind. Let's get it. What's let's that? Tree stand or a ground blind. Let's narrow it down instead of spot and stock. I mean, it can be done uh, on a whitetail, however. Okay. Think so less. I, I don't, all my whitetail hunting, and I do a ton of it in Montana. And my 29 Montana elk tags or deer tags I've had, I think I've shot 
five mule deer and all the rest are white tails. No I, kidding. Yeah. Growing up in Northern Minnesota, you know, you get the bug and yeah. uh, then you come out to Montana and they're kind of looked at like pestilence or something. And you're like, Again, well, I'll shoot. yeah, I'll shoot that nice 130 inch white tail if you guys don't want to. Yep. And uh, so I do a lot of it and all of mine, if they're not spot and stock, it's going to be some sort of blind kind of makeshift blind brush myself in. Uh, and in an instant, like instance like that, I'm really paying attention to the wind. So I bring my little puffer bottle mm-hmm. with my, uh, wind detector because we, in the mountains, especially we get these changes in thermals Yep. and as the w- ground warms, it rises. And then when the sun goes behind the, the horizon, it cools. And so the, the, it, it starts going downhill so that's probably when i'm whitetail hunting that is i'm sitting there and i'm just like and i can see these little wisps going up and and i'm paying attention to that all the time Mm -hmm. uh and then other than uh, probably my next thing would be my binoculars growing up in northern minnesota everyone thought oh it's so thick i don't need binoculars well what i've found is when it is really thick if you are patient and you will just keep watching and watching and i'll put my binos on a tripod Mm -hmm. you will see that antler tine going through that willow brush that you would never see with your naked eyes or you'll see just a flicker of an ear that there's a doe standing there looking at you and it's like was that a deer (laughs) look your bino yeah that's she's she's already locked into me uh so those are probably the two most important things i'd take with me on a whitetail hunt all right let's go to mule deer now all right what are the top three that you'd bring from muleys uh archery or rifle uh let's do archery time of year okay archery first thing i'm gonna bring is my optics yeah, out here in Mill Deer Country, it's big country. It's vast. It's desolate. And sometimes you'll be glassing those hillsides. And I put again, I put them on a tripod and you'll just see an antler that you know the deer moved in the sun, and whether it's in velvet or or not in velvet, it's just that one little thing that you saw. Mm-hmm. Uh and then I also bring a spotting scope uh out here. They're far away. Sometimes you'll glass a a mule deer that's a mile and a half away. And with my spotter, I can dial it up and really get a good look at it. Um, the other part would be, I probably would say my rangefinder. Mm-hmm. Uh, that when I moved out West, the deception of distances was ridiculous. I was the worst judge at distances. And I, I still force myself when I'm out there, like this week, when I'm archery hunting, I will look at a little rock and say, I think that's 34 yards. And then I'll take my rangefinder and check it. Because mm-hmm. a lot of times that deer comes out and, okay, you ranged it and it was 22 yards, but they kept taking a few steps. Well, the more comfort I get in these wide open landscapes of, okay, I think he's now at 29 yards versus 23 yards. Uh, so I would say my, my optics and my rangefinder are, are just absolutely critical for what I'm going to do when I'm out mule deer hunting and, uh, the way that we hunt with the backpack, uh, spot and stock stuff, uh, probably my my mystery ranch backpack is I, I, the, that that falls in my don't leave home without it category. Absolutely, yeah. So. With uh, antelope, I, I haven't talked at all about antelope yet. I mean, it's one of my favorite curves for sure. But what do you bring on that one? Because I mean, you already said you yeah. don't sit at water holes. Are you bringing decoys? Is it all yeah. hide and seek uh, game? 
I, I do, when I archery hunt antelope, I do bring some crazy things. I'll bring these outline. Montana decoy makes a, a cow mm-hmm. uh, outline. And so I'll try to hide me and my camera guy behind that. Uh, there's this hat called the be the decoy hat. Uh, I've worn that. Uh, I, I will admit that occasionally the antelope have frustrated me enough because I love to eat them. They're my favorite thing to eat that I have sat in blinds long enough that I did. I think I've taken two antelope out of a blind with my bow. Uh, and it, it, I I know for, for antelope though, still it's usually such a target rich environment that I would still rather be out there messing up a stock and blowing this and having them snort and wheeze at me. Yep. Uh, but I would say when, when I'm out there, uh, also my Sitka pants, like, uh, you know, I told you I'm using the apex mm-hmm. strip. Uh, they have built in knee pads. And when you're spotting and stocking antelope, it's a lot of hands and knees stuff. So I have a really thick pair of leather gloves on my left hand or a, a, a glove on my left hand because I'm holding my bow in my right and I'm doing that and knee pads will save your bacon on those sharp rocks and the occasional cactus. And so those are probably the things that when I'm antelope hunting, yeah, some decoys and stuff like that. But, uh, again, optics and uh, good pair of knee pads. Yep. Their eyesight's incredible. So kind of going in that line, I guess, even just with any spot in stock, I mean, what are some of the, the three, four, five, whatever? It could be 15. I mean, the list could be endless, but what are the main things when you spot that game animal? That's the one I'm going after. What's the next couple steps you're doing? I mean, what are you always paying attention of? Wind, noise, yep. height, whatever. Yep. I, I never go after an animal that's on its feet. I wait until they're bedded because by the time you make these big loops to account for the thermals and the winds, that animal might've moved 500 yards. And when you go out of sight of them to make your stock, they're also out of sight of you Mm -hmm. and you, you can't see where they end up. So I always make sure that they end up bedding somewhere. And then I say, all right, based on where they're bedding, what time of day is it? Is the thermal uphill? Is the thermal downhill? Mm -hmm. Most times I'm going to be coming in from uphill because I'm going to wait till they get in that later morning bed, which means I got an uphill draft. I can come in, have the wind right in my face. And then I I always put some sort of landmark. I don't care if it's just the single little juniper tree or it's Mm -hmm. a break in the rock wall or something. I make some mental note of what that is. And I'll even take my spotting scope and I'll take my, uh, the phone scope adapter and I'll take a picture of where that animal is bedded both tight and wide Mm -hmm. so that I know what it looks like when I get over there. It's like, Oh wait, there were four dead trees here. Which of the four dead trees was he by? Mm -hmm. And so I try to be pretty, pretty regimented in that before I get all excited. And then after I do all that, then I start planning, what's my route? How am Mm -hmm. I going to get over there? What am I going to do? So that's fun. There's a lot of things that, I mean, a person just has to learn by doing it. You make it sound pretty easy. (laughs) (laughs) Every one of those things, I can assure you, I've, I've messed it up more times than I've succeeded. (laughs) All right. Well, now that we've uh, got something dead on the ground, we've harvested an awesome trophy, whether it's doe, buck, whatever it might be, bowl. What's your favorite recipe? I'm really simple as far as recipes. Uh, I'm probably going to put it on my Traeger grill. I'm going to smoke it really slow. 
Uh, and it's probably going to have, uh, my wife takes this over the counter marinade and she has her derivative of it, some deviations. And so I'm probably going to marinate it in that for a couple hours. And then I'm going to cook it so slow that people get tired of waiting, Mm -hmm. but it is worth the wait. The end result. uh, Yeah. And I don't care what cut of meat it is off, off the animal. If you cook it slow enough. It's going to retain those mo- that moisture, those flavors, and it's not going to get tough. And yeah, I'm my cheeks are hurting just thinking about it. <laughs> yeah, we haven't ate yet either. Food sounds elk sounds great. Um, so with all the pressure that could potentially be coming this fall, you know, I mean, we don't know. Nobody knows. Uh, no matter what, at the end of the day, there's only so many tags that are sold. So I mean, there is a cap. But do you look for some of those spots that are just you just know it's going to suck going to, but is that yeah. worth and that's, is that part of your strategy too? Yeah. But especially for elk, I look at where are the places the elk are going to go to respond to hunting pressure. And I try correct. to use that to my advantage. Well, there are some places elk will consistently go in response to hunting pressure that other hunters don't want to go. Mm-hmm. The place, the place I hunt in Colorado, I go there third season over the counter. And when you leave the trailhead, uh, everybody takes the easy trail that goes this certain direction, walks right down the drainage. Well, there's a little trail that cuts up to the north, and it's just about 400 vertical feet of misery. But once you get up there, there's this beautiful bench. And you'll sit there, you'll hear people talking down at the trailhead, you'll hear car doors slamming, you'll pe- hear ATVs driving by. And my niece has shot a bull there. I've shot a bull there. My brother, he, unfortunately, an aspen tree jumped out in front of him. And I mean, in this little spot, it's it's not any fun to get to. But because of the amount of hunting pressure, these elk in Colorado find where are those little pockets. Mm-hmm. And it's like, clockwork that probably we've run in yeah we've run into these two old boys there who are locals and uh they're like what are you doing in how did you find this spot i I just stumbled into it actually i mean looking at maps i was just looking for these little benches because i know that that elk elk want to bed in a place with less than a 20 degree slope so back to that Starkey experimental forest research I'm telling, uh, that's one of my critical things is I might have some really steep slopes, but then it flattens out a little bit. Mm-hmm. If it, if I get to a spot where it flattens to less than 20 degrees, I know elk would consider bedding there. These other really steep faces, mm, that's not their preference. You're looking at and north, then I'll, north or south facing slopes? It, it, it depends matter. on the time of year. This, I mean, early in the season, it's going to be north, northeast, or northwest facing. In the later parts, in rifle seasons, it could be, it's probably not going to be straight south. It's going to be more of an east or west, southeast, southwest, northeast, northwest. Uh, and then the other part that we know is, according to all these studies at Starkey, is that elk like to be in the top third, either at the crest or the top third of the ridge. Mm-hmm. So if this ridge is 900 feet from bottom to top, they like to be in that top third. Okay. If I know they're in that, like that top third, and I know they want slopes less than 20 degrees, well, I can eliminate a whole lot of the mountainside that doesn't meet that criteria. Mm -hmm. So those are how I find these little pockets that these two old boys, uh, I mean, they shoot their elk every year too. They, they're, they just hunt, strictly hunt cow elk. Uh, We bump into each other up there and it's, 
it's fun to to see him there. Mm-hmm. But but it's, I I give that as an example of there are just these little pockets that hunting pressure pushes elk to. Yep. And once you once you find one of those places where elk respond to hunting pressure, don't tell your brother, don't tell your dad, don't tell your guy at work. Keep it to yourself because mm-hmm. the guy at work is going to bring two buddies oh, and yeah. he's going to bring it. And pretty soon it's not going to be a sanctuary from hunting pressure because everyone's going to be going in there. And the other beauty of these sanctuaries is year after year after year, the elk understand that's a safe place. Yeah, there's 10 of us in a bachelor group. Oh, Pete, he got shot last year, but the other nine of us made it through. That's, that's still pretty, we'll take those odds. Yep. Uh, so, uh, that's, that's how I do it. I try to anticipate where the hunting pressure is going to be and how do I adjust my plan accordingly? Very good. All right. So we got the virtual, we got the pressure. Let me, oh, here we go. Talked about the book. Pretty, What's that? You're pretty good at this, Ben. I need a technology officer sitting next to me to do all that you stuff need that these you're guys. doing. I, I, yeah, you know, <laughs> what you guys, what everybody doesn't see is the the five people that are over here helping me out. Um, so outside of the the books that are unavailable for elk and even just anything in big game, um, I mean, I remember that Jesus must have been close to 10 years ago now, but looking at antelope. And then trying to find research out there that was good on antelope and it was so limited. But I mean, for yep. even some of the other species, I mean, what else do you recommend out there for, for any print material or it could be electronic as well? Yeah. There- uh, for antelope, uh, there's a professor's last name's Yoakum, kind of like mm-hmm. Dwight Yoakum, the, the country music singer. He is the expert on antelope. I have mm-hmm. all of his books. I've got these little pages dog-eared about, I mean, he goes into what their preferred forage type is on a wet year versus a dry year. What's the, you know, the, the effects that a winter has on horn growth the in the year they're born versus the year, the two years, three years later, it's it, that stuff on antelope is just so, so helpful. Uh, mule deer. I have not really found that super, you know, concentrated area of where you can pick up lots of mule deer information. Uh, mm-hmm. I get it in bits and pieces. Uh, if yep. someone knows where that great meal deer resource is, sign me up. I'd, I'd love to, I just, I'm a consumer of all this information, whether it's digital, whether it's print, doesn't matter to me. I feel that the more I know about the species I'm hunting, probably the greater the likelihood I'm going to fill a tag. Yeah, absolutely. All right. With, um, I just, saw uh, with your, the practice of spot and stock, we kind of talked about your shooting techniques and, you know, practicing on one knee, two knees, on your, or even drawing. I mean, you talked about using a, a, a silhouette decoy, a cow decoy. It could be one of the buck decoys out there. There's a lot of good ones out. The hat, the hat's always fun. Uh, whoever makes that, I wish they made the paint a little bit more durable and didn't peel off. Uh, however, when you're practicing, do, I mean, do you do any of this stuff in your backyard? I mean, obviously people are going to stare at you weird, but. Um, yeah. I mean, do you ever take your bow for a a hike just for a, to take it for a walk? I do that. Uh, I will like archery season opens in Montana, September 1st. And if I'm not on the road, I go out and hunt uh, grouse with my bow because it's just the blue grouse or rough either. 
And, uh, I know sometimes I'm going to have to squat down to get under a limb or I'm going to have to do something different. Very seldom as a grouse, just standing right there. Hey, shoot me. (laughs) Uh, and then if you live in Bozeman, Montana, like I do, I think one of the requirements to own a house is you have to have an archery range. Mm. Uh, so I have an archery range. I live South of town on a little bit of acreage. And so I'm out there, you know, practicing my draw. So how I do it is I squat way down and I do my draw. And then I come way up because there's a lot of times when I'm doing this with mule deer, I'm in sagebrush that's, you know, 30 inches tall. Well, if I have that draw movement right out there in the open, they're going to just lock in and see it. But if I can do my draw, get to my anchor point and then slowly come up, usually they might see me or they might look at me. But it still usually will give me a shot. So I'm sure my neighbor Clark, he's over there thinking, what is Randy up to today? But. I do it. It's yep. just anything I can do to try replicate mm-hmm. the the actions or the the activities that I'm going to encounter when I'm out in the field. I don't care how goofy it looks. I, I do a lot of stupid things by accident. I may as well do a few goofy looking things on purpose. Yep. And uh, What about <laughs> so. your pack? I mean, are you waiting down your, your Mr. Ranch on some of the hikes or... Yeah, when back when people were asking that question about what's my, my workout regimen, uh, it depends on if I want cardio or do I want core strength? Do I want to get my feet, I don't want to say beat up, but get those calluses because a lot of people come out west and they have maybe a marginal pair of boots and they really haven't broken their feet. Mm-hmm. And your wheels, that's that contact point. And when you're doing 10, 12-mile days elk hunting, you want to have your feet leathered up. And so – Sometimes when I know I got to get my feet in better shape, I'll put 40 pounds in my mystery match. And you start uphill, downhill, side hilling, you will quickly identify where the hot spots are in in your boot. Mm -hmm. And then if I want cardio, I'll lighten that up and I'll just try to go faster. And so that'll help me with my cardio pulmonary. And so it's it's not a lot of science, but it seems to work pretty good. You have to write a book on it now. (laughs) <laughs> working uh, there's, work out. there's there's people who are experts on that there's a lot of gym rats that i hang out with that i know that they, they got that whole fitness thing figured out i'm i'm more of a dairy queen fitness guy <laughs> i know guys like that too <laughs> all right let's see what else we got we've got how heavy when so let's let's use maybe something that's more not realistic but more common for some of our mm-hmm our audience here, which is hunting with one or two people, maybe three people, you know, not a couple mm-hmm. cameramen, not everything else, but say there's two, you and your son, you both have tags on your packs. When you guys are leaving camp, what does that look like on weight wise? I mean, are you bringing snacks, food, water? Yep. It depends on the time of year. If it's a lot of times we're doing late season or post red hunts where it's cold. So we're bringing extra layers of sick gear, bringing an extra pair of socks because I'm very adamant that I'm changing my socks every day that uh, in the middle of a day, uh, I'm bringing water. One of us is bringing some survival gear, fire starter, you know, whatever it is. One of us, we, we don't duplicate anything. So, all right, I got the spotter, you got the tripod, however it is. Mm -hmm. Um, But usually when we leave the truck, by the time we strap our rifle on our pack, I'm I'm not a sling guy. I strap it right to my Mystery Ranch pack. A lot of people ask me, how do you attach that to your pack? Well, go buy a Mystery Ranch pack. It's pretty easy. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so by the time I put all that on there, I'm at about 25 to 30 pounds on my pack. Yep. So it just... 
<laughs> I, I I'd like to make it lighter, but I haven't figured out how to do that because I want to have my knives, I want to have my game bags, everything else. So, okay. Um, do you? How much do you focus on the scent? I mean, are you spraying down your gear? Yeah. Uh, when I'm elk hunting, I get asked this a lot. I mm-hmm. focus on scent from the standpoint of the wind and where it's carrying my scent, but. Elk hunting is so active. You are perspiring. You're working up a lather. Oh, yeah. You cannot. Uh, I, I know that a lot of these guys who who are friends of mine who hunt whitetails very technically, very, I mean, they're really into the scent. But you, you're also up 20, 25 feet. So you have a scent corridor that's going above the animal that's approaching you. You have an animal that's usually coming to you instead of you to them. Mm-hmm. So there's all these things where... Uh, I don't want the false idea that, oh, I've sprayed down so I can fool the nose on this elk. No, I can't. Even if I spray down, whatever, if I've been hiking, if I, if that elk gets in my scent cone, that's dispersing, the game is up. So I don't, I manage scent through the wind and the thermals, but I don't worry about the rest of it. I mean, yeah, yeah, sure. I don't go to the gas station and dump gas on myself, but uh, yeah, can't hide the sweat. yeah so perfect all right well we were coming up on eight o'clock it looks like so let me go up here randy we're gonna have you be on this call as well when we announce the winner Uh oh because you are the reason reason why this person this lucky lucky person from idaho of places uh we're getting actually a hand-delivered card i feel like this is a wheel of fortune or something (laughs) <laughs> thank you Kirsten. what 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 do they get do they get all that loophole gear sitting on the table in front of you plus a scope plus a 500 hundred dollar gift card for sitka at shields no way so they get the binos the rangefinder, a scope yep we got a tbr or an rx 2800 tbr w wow. we got this fancy thing looks like a 10 by 42 bx5 randy you don't know what you're talking about but this is a bx5 10 by 42. <laughs> exactly <laughs> what you said it was. Obviously, you've seen this a few times. We have a scope, which I think was a VX5. Ooh, VX5 HD. 3 to 15. That look, that, oh, that might be. No, that's a 3 to 15 by 44, I'd bet. With Definitely. CDS? Yep. All right. You've seen this before, Man. too, I've seen. I figure. Yes, and then the $500 gift card to Shields for Sitka gear. So this lucky person in Idaho... Drum roll. I'm going to hopefully not butcher his last name. Is Marcos Garcias, Garcia of Idaho, and he wins all this fun stuff. And so the team from Shields will be reaching out to him to let him know. But wow. here is the winner. Everybody can see that. Very exciting. Congratulations, Marcos. And uh, appreciate everybody joining the call. Uh, Randy, I appreciate the time. I know it's not easy for you to get away, especially this time of year. Uh, I hope everybody that did tune in got some value out of this. I know I did. It was fantastic. We really appreciate it. I think we're good. Randy, any questions for us? Any questions for the the people out there in the audience? No, but if anyone knows where there's a big mule deer running around here in Nevada, 
uh, even a little one, I'll, I'm, I'm fine. <laughs> so, uh, but no, I just want to thank you guys for having me. Thank you guys for being such a great company. You support so many things in the conservation space. And I know you don't take credit for it because you say, well, that's just our job. That's what we do. But Shields is always there uh, supporting conservation. And uh, I hope people appreciate that because I sure do. And uh, thanks for having me. Thanks for inviting all these people. I can't believe anyone would show up and want to hear what I have to say, but I sure am grateful that they did. Absolutely. Well, we appreciate everything. Thanks again, Randy. And we'll yep. tune in Take for tomorrow care. night. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Shields Outdoors podcast. Stay tuned for future segments and visit our social media pages, Shields Outdoors on Facebook and Instagram for daily updates.